This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, my guest is the lead singer for the Billboard charting classical crossover quartet, Sons of Serendip, a unique blend of vocals, harp, piano, and cello that won the hearts of fans and judges on America's Got Talent. Coming up is my conversation with the singer with a voice as smooth as Manuka Honey, Micah Christian. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 Hey, Pat, thank you for having me. Oh, man, it's so good to see you and to talk again. I saw you showcase... Uh, the group was singing in Indianapolis at the Midwest Arts Expo, and they showcased for presenters, which are the people who book all these tours. And you were in this beautiful glass dome on the streets of downtown Indianapolis, and the audience was just riveted by the serenity of your voice and the great way this quartet works together. Was that a good venue for you, or was that weird to be in that big glass dome? We performed in all kinds of venues, and there were some folks that were, you know, concerned about the sound. But um, when I listened back, I, I felt like it sounded fine, and yeah, we were happy with that experience. Can I tell you the difference? You didn't have a drummer, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. I saw some of those groups. That sound was like banging off the glass and going all over the place. But I think the way that was shaped for your group, it amplified all the nuances and. You have an unbelievable voice, which I'm sure people tell you. Why did it take you so late in life to step out and, and want to have a band like this? Yeah, so my relationship to music started when I was young. I was two years old when I first started off on the drums and then went to piano at eight years old. And then in middle school, my middle school chorus teacher got me involved in, in singing and, and she actually pulled me aside after the first chorus class that we had. And she said, you know, I think you have potential in singing. That was the first time I'd ever heard that. And so I was like, all right, cool. And I told my parents and they really stressed for me to get good grades and not depend on, <laughs> on singing at any point. And so I went through high school, was a part of the chorus and did a couple of solos. But then in college, I started getting into it even more deeply. I joined an, an acapella group called Hyannis Sound, which is a semi-pro group on Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. We did like 90 to 100 performances every summer, and it was an incredible experience, but I still didn't see music as my path. It took a while. I think a lot of it had to do with some self-confidence issues that I had. I had spent a lot of time comparing myself to other people. And, you know, I would hear other singers and I'm like, oh, they can do this and do this. And I can't do that, you know, in the same way. I love their tone and I love how they can do a lot of riffs and things. And so for me, it was one of those things that like I, I didn't value it as much. I didn't value my own voice as much. But it, it actually took another experience, uh, some words of wisdom that I received. I was thinking I was, I was about 29, 30 years old. And uh, it was from a a nun in Peru, in a, a village in northern Peru. Uh, my wife and I were volunteering out there. And there was a moment where we had this really, there was some frustration stuff as to like our experience down there for, for a period of time. And so we were talking with her and I asked her, I'm like, is our work of any value to you? You don't tell us we're doing a good job. You don't give us any feedback on, on what we're doing. And it's like, what are we doing here? Like, is our work of any value to you? And she said these words that kind of hit. 
in a different way for me. At first, I was frustrated or angry, but then I realized it was it was exactly what I needed to hear. She said, Micah, you need to stop waiting for me or anyone else to tell you that your work is of value. You need to look within yourself, find value in your own work, and just do it. After I got over the frustration, the anger, I realized that those words were words I needed to hear. And music was one of those things I pushed to the margins of my life because I was waiting for validation. And so once I brought it back to become a more central part of my life, it wasn't for fame or ambition. At that point, it became about love. And I started thinking about, all right, how can I share this? One, because I love it, but then also um, as an expression of love as well. And they're knowing that they're going to be people who enjoy it, other people who don't really care for it, but there might be some few people out there that might need it. And so just share what I have for them. Don't worry about the results. Just share from the heart and just let it find the ears and the hearts that it's meant to find. Yeah, yeah. What an important mirror she held up to you and you have to... First, you have to look at yourself, your external self, which is the angry self. Right, yeah. And, th- and then you have to push through that to look inside. And I do think that a lot of talented people I know are exterior thinkers. They, they're they thinking about the prize or the fame or the car or the house. And when you do get in that game, and many people do, you're always chasing more of that, a bigger version of that. And, and it does get complicated because you're never satisfied by the external as you are by the internal. And you made a really good point about that comparison. That is the thief of joy. When you start to compare everything around you and say, I can't do as well as that person, it really shuts people down. And the truth is, you're never going to be great at anything at the beginning. There's a learning curve on how to drive a car and how to hit a tennis ball, Any anything. And if you're patient and if you go, I like this enough to grow and learn, and that that includes in life and in relationship, everything. But if you have any form of perfectionism in you or you have any kind of thing where you're running the race against somebody else, you're going to lose. You're going to be looking over your shoulder for them. A long time when I broke away from the industry, not because I didn't like the idea of entertainment. I just thought, I better run my race against the clock or my own best time. If I want to be better than the last time I did this, I need to not take it for granted. And I, I think the pandemic really brought out for me what I was passionate about in the kinds of things that I did, because I thought, I don't really do this for the money. I do it for expression, and I do it for an uplifting experience. And I gain from performance, and this is what I see in you, is I see that you are having such a great time bringing the audience on the ride. So there's kind of like a little bit of a synergy pass back and forth because you can sing great in the studio and that's one thing, but you're really a performer. I mean, you're really a guy that you love that feedback loop. I do. Yeah. I I love creating a moment with an audience where it's, it feels like a shared experience where we're receiving and we're giving at the same time, giving from the heart and receiving from the heart. Over the years, we have learned how to, instead of seeing it as a performance or a show, seeing that time on stage as creating an experience with the audience. It's, it's something that I've grown to love over the time. Well, and what happens is, it's community in a way. Yes, exactly. Yep. Because prior to that, they've come from their job or their school or a restaurant. Life's a little hectic. They only become an audience once they get settled 
and you begin to take them on the ride. Before that, there are a series of individuals trying to find what they have in common. And from live performance, I find there's a contagious nature that you don't get from watching something on the cell phone or binging on your computer, which is that there's an organism there. There's a living, breathing experience of when we clap at the same time, when we laugh at the same time. It's all without a conductor. You're doing it with the moment you hit that note and everyone goes, ah, that's just a really magical thing that only live performance can offer. When I was in a movie theater once, I remember, you know how you look up sometimes and you see the light from the projector hitting the screen? And in that, there's just dust floating along. I always look at that dust as some ethereal magic dust of some kind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because it's just a storytelling device. The projector is just putting a picture in front of us, but that picture and the music that goes with it and the dialogue that goes with it suddenly becomes a thing that we all can bond on. And if it's a, if it's a good experience, if it's a powerful experience, it becomes emotional. Right. And so I don't know what that is, but but I really, really love that whole idea of bringing community groups together. It's kind of like the old fire circle from the olden days, which is there you are, storytelling, sparks are going towards the sky, and those are mixing themselves with the stars. That's what a great night of performance feels like, even without all of that other those accoutrements, you get that energy from the audience. Right. One of the things that we add into the experience is singing together. And I've learned that that the audience really enjoys singing. And oftentimes, like, there are folks that who are singers or, or who have experienced singing in choirs, and they, they're looking up on the stage and, and they know the songs we're performing. And they're like, oh, I would love to. They're imagining themselves, like, being on that stage and singing. And so we try to just even share those moments, too, of just... Let's all sing together. And we've learned that the audience just really values that that time. Well, now you often are doing an interpretation of a song. Yes. I listened to Firework this morning a little bit, and you have your own sort of rendition of that. I think that's a lot of what you do is special arrangements of tunes that folks might know. Is that right? Yeah. And so what, what I can do is go back to, to even just how the group started from that particular moment when I decided to get back into music and bring it to be a more central part of my life. So around that time, I ended up calling Cordero, the pianist in the group, and I told him that when I get back, I, I want to do music in some way. I don't know what or where it's going to lead, but I just want to do it. And um, he and I had worked together a little bit before. So then when I got back from Peru, he and I connected and we started making music. And then around that same time, it was like maybe a month later is where when I heard about the America's Got Talent auditions, they had reached out to that acapella group that I had been a part of before but they weren't available because they have that commitment to Cape Cod during the summer. So then they reached out to the alumni to see if anybody wants to, to audition. So then that's when I called Cordero, who was roommates with Mason and Kendall at the time. And uh, the harpist is Mason and the cellist is Kendall and Cordero is the pianist. And, um, and I was like, hey, do you guys want to audition together and just see what happens? And, <laughs> and they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so when we first got together to put together a, an audition tape uh, to send in, we knew that we had to do covers because that's what America's Got Talent wanted at the time. And so we're like, well, let's just do these covers in a way that resonates with us, like how we would do them. And so we just started rearranging them. And the next thing you know, we ended up on the show 
and ended up placing fourth that season. And our lives completely changed from that. But a lot of that, the arrangements that we were doing, folks wanted us to continue. So then that's how we we got known is is for recreating popular music. Right. So that was 2014. And what's interesting to me is it's completely backwards of how people go about this sometimes. Big exposure up front. The first thing you audition for, you're not, you probably don't even have posters made or any kind of thing, right? You just have a right, name right. and some songs. We had nothing. Right. <laughs> and talent, like right. no doubt, every one of you, your instruments, your vocals, everybody had talent. But I want to know how hectic it was or complicated to then suddenly be racing ahead to be ready for touring and recording because you didn't have a giant catalog of work. You were at the starting line and they wanted you to be ready to play big gigs right after, right? Yeah, that was stressful <laughs> because our, our first public performance was the audition <laughs> for America's Got Talent. And so like, we had no experience. All of our experience was really happening through the show. And the analogy that came to mind was that it was like playing in the Super Bowl for your first time playing, and then now we have to figure out how we're gonna stay in the league. Once the, the show ended and we were out on our own, we met and started brainstorming how we were gonna put together, or what, what, what we needed to do in order to be able to, to turn this into a career. And those first few shows, when we first started developing those, I was terrified. I had so much anxiety after America's Got Talent. Every night I was waking up in the middle of the night with the, these anxiety attacks because I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, this is a whole new chapter of my life and I, I, I don't know if I can do this. But then over time, concert after concert, we just started making tweaks to things. And, and then eventually, probably about after eight or, eight or nine months of performing is when I started to then... Um, feel a little bit more comfortable with being on stage. Yeah, I don't know what the 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 phrase is, but it's kind of like you've got a airplane in flight, and you have to build the landing gear before you come down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an extraordinary story, I got to say. Now, each of you though had years and years of musical experience. There were teachers among you that taught music. Didn't everybody come from having music in their life? in a way that wasn't to be in a group yet. I would say that's a big God wink that your friend had two roommates that were already savvy. Like everybody came in there ready to be on a dream team. Yeah. So two of the guys studied music. They were getting their masters at Boston University where we all met at the time. And, and it was in harp performance and cello performance. Cordero and I were actually studying different things. I was studying theology at the time, and Cordero was studying law. And uh, we did music as a passion. Like, we didn't study it, study it like that, like formally. And you didn't depend on it to make your living. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, when the group started, it was actually more of... So, they were all friends, but they hadn't thought about collaborating before. And then when I when I met Cordero, who's the pianist, he 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 told me that he's like, yeah, one of my roommates is a harpist and one of my roommates is a cellist. And I had a different image in my head of what even they look like. Too. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. So when I first met them, I was like, wait, 
you're the cellist? Yeah, he says that he's the cellist. And then Mason, who's about my height, six foot two, 240 pound black man. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm the harpist. And I was like, what in the world is this? And so I saw the uniqueness in that already. Around that time, I, you know, we had joked about like, yeah, one day we should just like perform something together and just see what happens. But we never thought it would be America's Got Talent and that we would get swept up on that journey in the way that we did. And because you're a vocalist, it was it a new thing suddenly to have to deal with a harp and a cello and does he travel with a harp? That seems like a giant instrument. Yeah. So when we were on tour, yes, we put the harp in the back of our van and okay. yeah, and then we travel around the country with it. I'd say that's probably the biggest difficulty with starting the harp is getting the harp to the gig. Right. Right. <laughs> and if it's a fly out, then we'll we'll find someone who's willing to allow us to rent their harp. You know, wherever it is that we're going. It was really a pleasure to see you guys work together because it's one thing to listen to the music on Spotify. It makes the theater a sanctuary. One of the biggest surprises was hearing how people have used our music for really meaningful moments in their lives. So, for example, like we've heard folks who have used our music for walking down the aisle, you know, on their wedding day, or if they have a loved one who is on their deathbed. They've they've used our music to help comfort them during those moments. Uh, don't take that wrong, by the way. Nobody's doing it to make the person. Oh no no. <laughs> okay. no no. No no. Keep playing that until Grandpa goes. And no. then <laughs> That's been a, a pleasant surprise of seeing how the music's been used um, by folks who are listening. Part of it is that it transports us, mm. right? It takes us somewhere, and I think music in general has that sort of emotional ability to create moments, just like you said. So if you're trying to make moments, and also I know that you're a guy who's very focused on building a better world, how many places in the show where you are, where are you saying, I want this moment to resonate? Are you by design trying to find that? Or are you just surfing a wave and feeling it? I would say that at first it was surfing a wave and feeling it, but then seeing patterns over time has helped us to be able to see what what works and what doesn't uh, what we try to do is like there's an arc to our shows and we try to have a lot of moments of levity and laughter and keep it light and then near the end as it progresses it gets more and more reflective and then by the end if there's an encore then we'll share a story that has been particularly impactful for a number of people that we've heard from. We know kind of where things are going. Like we'll switch out some different things, but there's some things that don't change because we know that those are the, the moments that some people are actually looking for. But the story you tell often will give context to how the music landed in a specific instance. Yes. Yeah. It's like a soundtrack, I guess, in a way, you know, if you think of it as a movie that the, maybe pre-telling the story of some a, a great moment in life being highlighted by the music. I, I feel like when, when I'm watching, I go, oh, that's, I can see that. I can see that person walking down the aisle right here. And how does it feel when you now take the group and collaborate with a group like the Boston Pops, when you then are surrounded by a bigger sound? Is that uh, just another thrill altogether or? Yeah, that was one of our dreams. When we first started, uh, we had this moment after a gig that was really, really difficult. <laughs> it was actually at a, a nursing home and we 
just it, it was a, it was a circus show. We didn't know what we were doing at the time. And then afterwards, we sat down and we had a, a conversation about what we hope to see in our future as a group. And performing with orchestras was one of those things, especially because, you know, a couple of the guys had experience with being in orchestras and to actually be a featured act with an orchestra was something that was one of our dreams collectively and so then when we had the chance within a year of the group forming um had the chance to perform with the boston pops for the fourth of july celebration in boston massachusetts like we were blown away and that was a, a very special moment for us and because oftentimes we're doing our own like orchestrations too and we'll use computer software instruments in order to make that sound for recordings oftentimes like when we put out music but to actually hear what it, that sounds like that same sound sounds like live with an orchestra yeah. is magical so you provide charts to them of how it would be expanded yeah so you lived in boston you graduated from boston university yep with a master of divinity and you have recently made a transfer you've moved to los angeles I, yes. we just talked about that the other day that's got to be a whole new thing with all this at the same time, having the change of location. And so far, what's your impression of the Los Angeles scene? We, we love it. My wife and I, we've been here for about like a year and, and four months or so. And it's been so much fun getting out of the, the cold weather in Boston has been huge. Um, but then also being in a city with so many creatives and so many opportunities to go and listen to live music and connect with other artists and collaborate with other artists, uh, that, that's been something that I feel like it's, it's helped to enhance our art, like quality of life as well. And so, yeah, we're, we're really grateful to, to be here right by the beaches. It's, it's amazing. Like you can go to the beach, you can go to the mountains, you can go hiking and then go to a concert all in the same day. And right. that, that's L.A. So. You're the new spokesman for Los Angeles tourism now. Right, yeah. That's what they want you to tell people. Right. They don't want you to mention the smog or the traffic or any of that. But, you know, I was there for many years. I did enjoy it. I found that all the people that were my friends were people who had moved from Chicago, Minneapolis. They were still from somewhere else, the ones uh -huh. that I really connected with. Yep. And I don't know the why of that. But the... Irony to me was that in LA, sometimes you don't meet your neighbor unless there's an earthquake and it's four in the morning and everyone's in their underwear. People have a tendency to travel to see their friends in different parts of the city, but but nobody just stops by, right? When you lived in Boston, did people go, oh, I was in the neighborhood? Nobody's ever in the neighborhood in LA. Yeah, but the same same in Boston though. Oh, was it? Like, yeah, I, I didn't have that experience really in Boston. In, in Randolph, where I grew up just outside of Boston, yes, we had that experience, but in the city... Not so much. I, I would say, though, that that where we are right now, we've connected with our neighbors. So it, it's been good. And I'm even collaborating with one of them on, on a project as well. And so, so yeah, I, I think our, our experience has been pretty good. <laughs> oh, I'm happy to hear that. Now, I do know that you have a lot of volunteering in your heart. Uh, your background, you mentioned Peru earlier, but you spent time in Honduras and in Calcutta, India. Is, does this singing pay better than volunteering? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I will say that the those volunteering experiences were very formative um, experiences for me. And I think that it, it shaped the way that I approach music. And I'm um, even going through, you know, seminary, thinking that I was going to go into to be a pastor at some point and then having my whole life turned around where I'm now in, in music. All of those experiences 
have shaped who I am and how I approach music and they inform how I approach music too. So the mindset that I went into this with was music as, as a service as opposed to mm-hmm. music for fame and, and, and just for ambition. So, Well, in many ways, what you found is you have a bigger congregation. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think that your voice is a gift. And I think that when you sing, you are creating moments that elevate the human condition. Is it different than speaking as a pastor to sing? Not really. And to take people on the ride or to offer that opportunity for them to find themselves in the music. The gift of your singing and your voice and your volunteering, you know, it all now comes to a place. You have quite a bit bigger, bigger audience and you get to continue to decide the experience. I don't think your values have changed and I don't think your outlook of what your intent here, which is that notion of building a better world can be done through your voice and not always through your deed. When Katrina came through New Orleans and I was living in Mandeville, Louisiana, I had a small perspective of service because I I rebounded like everyone out out for a few days. And I came back with a trailer full of stuff. My brother and I came back with food and chainsaws and gasoline and all kinds of stuff that we were going to come help. And we were helping a few people at a time. Just leave the chainsaw there and say, pass it on to someone. But when we stepped back a little bit and realized that a visit to a fire station Instead of it being, can we help? Is this our ego involved? Can we do something where we are gratified by that? We were like, how can we be of service? What do you need? And one fire station, they said, we have no diesel. And we don't, we didn't have diesel, but we just took the information. And then we went to another place where we talked to a mayor and he said, we need generators. Then we went to another place and the person said, we need gas. And, and we were like, do you have diesel? And they go, yeah, we have diesel. We go, you know what? You know, if you take the diesel and trade for the gas. Anyway, by being a communicator and by not having anything in it for ourselves, it became like a really interesting network. Some of it, again, was divine intervention in that we did cross a trailer that had a sign on the back that said generators for cost. And I go, this guy can't have generators in that trailer. And I waved him down and I said, you have generators in there? And he held up seven fingers. Yeah, I got seven. I go, follow me to the mayor's office. It was amazing, but it, the puzzle didn't go together by itself. What happened was we show up the mayor with seven miraculous generators. He goes, well, we can't pay for those. So then it was like, oh, who do we contact that will donate money to pay for these so that we can just keep the ball rolling? And one of those people was uh, actress Terry Hatcher had made a donation to help cover the first number of generators. And I just said to the guy with the trailer, where did you get these? He said, Little Rock. I go, drive back to Little Rock and fill this with as many generators as you can. And by the time you come back, we'll raise the money for the remaining generator. It was something where that purpose and passion to be that versus can we cut this one tree off this one fallen house? And it really changed my perspective of a more of a sense of global service, the clarity of driving out of the area with information we became more valuable not in the heart of it. So as we were pulling away, we heard a story on NPR that was live. And I thought, this is weird. Is this really live? And we called into this thing and we had a list in front of us that came from the Red Cross. And we said, hey, they don't want clothes on this. Here's what they need right now. They need diapers. They need hygiene products. And this list will change three days from now. So if you're not sending it today, then wait for another message to go out. But it really felt 
amazing to just be able to be a connective tissue for people. I've lived really paying it forward from there because I was lucky to have a survived house that we were able to get back into after time. Yeah. And what's great about that too, is that you didn't go in there and just offering things that they didn't need. You ask questions, you listened. It takes a level of presence and and humility as well. Um, not thinking that you know exactly what they need, but being willing to to listen. And then that makes you more effective in terms of meeting the needs that they have. Yeah. I had an assistant who did lose quite a bit and was rebounded out of the area, went to Alexandria, Virginia and said, am I out of a job? I said, no, you have a new job. Once I find out what people need, you call and find me five gallon containers that can take gas out into boats. And he was diligent. You know, he was on the phone getting satellite phones. So communication would be better. And all of that, it was like being on Survivor or Amazing Race or something. Right, right. Because every day there would be like a new thing that we'd go, oh, I never heard of that. Let's see if we can find that. The interesting part of how human beings behave is that about a month or two later, it became people calling us, hey, can you get me tickets to the Saints game? And we're like, no, <laughs> that's not what we're doing here. Like people kind of got right. selfish on their ask. Right, right. I do know that your faith is a big part of how you live your life. Are there things that the Sons of Serendip do that are a cause or something that we can amplify that is important to you? There is one organization that we are connected with right now. And it's a bridge building organization called Braver Angels. I talk about them because they're going to be a very important part in our next elections um, because they have been working diligently on finding ways to bring the humanity back into our political conversations. And, uh, and so they have workshops throughout the year where they bring together um, the right and the left and they have um, debates, but then they also find ways to bridge the gap between the two and find ways to help folks to empathize with one another and see each other as human beings. So when we're on tour, oftentimes we're talking about ways to, to fix all the world's problems and all that kind of stuff. And, and we you know get into some really deep conversations. And one of the things that, that, that has come up is how oftentimes we look at one another as concepts and not as human beings. And so we encounter one another as concepts. And this has been something that we have experienced. We performed in a lot of different rural communities as well. And through that experience, like we went in with a concept of what we thought that experience was going to be like. And we encounter folks as concepts, but then also we experienced it the other way as well. And so through the music though, it helped us to connect with people on on the heart level. And then through that, those touring experiences, especially in rural communities, became heart expanding experiences. And so organizations like Braver Angels that are helping to build bridges between people who have very different backgrounds and experiences, those are the kinds of, of things that we've been focused on lately. So, Yeah. You told a funny story, which I know is one you've told before when you do in your show about the misperception of your arrival, America's Got Talent. Yeah. yeah. Can you just share a little bit about that moment where people, they didn't think you were there to audition? Right. Yeah. So we got our audition, our audition time. We were heading to Madison Square Garden and uh, where the audition was going to take place. And there were two events that were happening at the same time, a basketball event and the America's Got Talent auditions. And Mason had his, har had his harp, Kindle his cello as well. 
And we were heading towards the America's Got Talent auditions. As we got closer, the security guard comes over and she's like, sorry, fellas, but the basketball game's over that way. And we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> and so we like paused for a second and just kind of looked. And then we were like, no, no, we're here for the America's Got Talent auditions. You know, we have a harp and a cello, you know, <laughs> we're not going to the basketball game. So, you know, what's funny, though, is that within a couple of years, we did go back to Madison Square Garden with the harp and cello and everything to to do the um, the anthem for one of the Knicks games. And so. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. So it finally all <laughs> so came together. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you also had the opportunity to perform for the Creative Arts Emmys. Yeah. And that must have been a really fun invitation. That was. Like when we first got the call, we were like, what is happening? We got flown out to L.A. and we walked the red carpet and, you know, did all these things. And, and it was a moment that I guess like there have been some key moments that have made us pause and, and just really take it in and give thanks. And that was definitely one of those moments where on the red carpet and we and we stopped and we we're like, guys this is important <laughs> and this is a moment that we may never experience again so let's just take this in and really experience this and be present and we had, we had a moment where we just gave thanks we ended up connecting with a, a few people too like just folks that we had seen all over tv and in some of our favorite films too and so that was that was a really awesome experience do you work on original music at all yeah we do uh so Two of the members currently are songwriters and composers. And on our last album, we actually had half original material and half covers. So that that's something that will probably continue is just a balance of both originals and covers uh, because folks are resonating with, with both, but we don't want to give up the covers too. What's the title of your most recent album? It's called Mosaic. And uh, it's an album that we did during the pandemic. I would probably say that's our most creative album just because it's half originals and half covers. But most of these can be heard on Spotify and various other music outlets. Yep. On anywhere that you find, you know, music di digitally, you can find our music. I do want to be sure that folks can find your website, sonsofserendip.com and on Instagram at sonsofserendip. And from the get go, everybody questions the name of this band. Now there's a yep. reason for it and there's a great story <laughs> behind it. Is it frustrating to have people say that to you? No, it's not. We're just like, all right, this is our name, and we know that folks are going to mess it up, but it, it's it's totally fine. I would say the most frustrating times when people mess it up would be when we had just met the folks that are going to be introducing us on stage, and we went over everything, and then still they'll say Sons of Serendipity, or like somebody called us, as an introduction, I, I want to bring up Sons of Champagne. And we're like, what in the world? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so those little moments can be frustrating. But outside of that, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Well, I saw Howard Stern compliment you on your talent and the music and the arrangement and then said it's the dumbest band name. And yeah. to me, that's like complimenting somebody's baby picture and then saying your kid's an idiot. <laughs> It felt a little odd, and I thought, wow, what a strange, especially given that was right when you first were auditioning. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that it doesn't get in your head, and I'm glad that you guys have the self-confidence to be who you are. And I guess I want to encourage folks to find out how to build a better world by listening to your music and finding out more about Sons and Serendip. Thank you, Pat. Oh, it's great to have you, buddy. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you.
Let's sign off with the sounds of the Sons of Serendip. The song is Butterflies Fly Away with vocals by Micah Christian. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare.